so I mean, I think for me, and, and again, it's, it, it can sound terrible, but like this idea of love, find something that you love and do it and you're going to be happy. And like, I remember it felt really entitled. And, and even when people were talking about what they're going to do in college, I was like, this, do you, does everyone love what they do? So it's Zach's video here from Boston Speaks Up. I am here at Startup Boston Week. Big shout out to Stephanie Rulick and the team for making this happen. Um, I may be obligated to say that because they're having me on this dope stage, but I am by no means saying that for any other reason other than the fact that I am incredibly grateful to be here right now. Um, in, in particular, because I'm with Gabriella Soret Campos. Correct. Gabriella. <laughs> and, and Gabriella, go ahead and say that in a, in a much more appropriate Spanish way for me. So if you want me to go full Spanish, it's Gabriela Seret Campos. That's beautiful. And I'm not even going to try. Um, it's okay. But, Most people just call yeah. me Gabriela, so we're good. Cool. So, so Gabriela, it's, it's good to have you here. And sort of before we um, kind of just get into like a flow in all sorts of directions, um, can you let people know sort of like what your role is today? Yeah. Um, at Chronosphere and, and sort of and let people f um, know a little bit about the company. Yeah, absolutely. So Chronosphere is um, a B2B SaaS company and we work in the observability space. Uh, we're an observability platform. Um, so we're, you know, global company. Right now we're in about 30 some odd states, about seven countries, uh, but still a startup, right? So that's why I love kind of working in, in the community of startups and, and being in a place like this. Um, and my role is the global head of people and talent. So Amazing. anything that touches the humans, I get to play in. Very cool. And uh, Gabriella explained or described uh, Chronosphere as a startup, but it is a startup with a latest round of funding of just at or over a couple hundred million, um, putting out a valuation of a billion dollars, which is not the first time that you've been at a company that not only had a billion dollar valuation, you actually were head of people at Drizzly, yeah. which had a 1.1, 1.2 billion dollar exit to, to yes. Uber, correct? Yeah, so got to be part of that fun ride and it was, it was crazy. We, um, it, it was definitely not a sure thing when I went to Drizzly. <laughs> it was a learning experience, but I went for the people. I, I followed the team um, and that was really cool. We did, we had a 1.2 billion dollar valuation. Uh, Chronosphere, um, also kind of considered a unicorn company with its round of funding, just hit our four years. And I mean, in 2021, they were already valued at uh, over a billion. So that's amazing. Uh, finding so, some cool teams. Yeah. So what, what, what years were you at Drizzly? Was that pre-COVID? And, yeah. and so I'm curious, like, I've heard you speak before. You, I mentioned before we went live that you, you did a great interview with uh, Jenny Goodman from Underscore VC. Shout out to Jenny and the core community. Uh, I'm sort of, guess, curious. Can you describe for folks here and, and for the listeners that will hear this later on demand on the Boston Speaks Up platform brought to you by Value Creation Labs. Shout out to VCL. We got a new website live today. Uh, how, has, how have things changed in terms of attracting and retaining talent, right? Cause I, and I'll kind of tee you up a little bit because I want you to really expand on this and kind of double, triple click on it. At, at one point in time, you know, we're all, we're all working in offices like well before, you know, back, I remember back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, it was all about like it, it sort of office perks, like fitness classes, you know, yoga classes, beer in the office, like that sort of stuff. And then COVID happened. 
Um, and I feel like, you know, hearing you speak about this before, like you made a really interesting pivot uh, to sort of like what kind of benefits really could sort of like future proof sort of like that employee engagement program for a company to scale a good culture and which involves like keeping people happy and, and sort of keeping them engaged and, and which ultimately keeps them sort of retained at that, at that company. So talk a bit about sort of what it was like at Drizzly what you did during COVID and like how different it is at Chronosphere in terms of just like, what are you offering to employees to stoke their fire and keep them, and keep yeah. them around, keep them happy? Um, so there, there's a lot to that question. Uh, went to Drizzly at the very beginning of 2018. Um, so it was around that time, I think I was in maybe the 70th, 80th employee. So it was still pretty small here in Boston. Um, at that time, we had a couple of employees in California, really small Denver team. Uh, but the bulk of our employees were, were here in Boston. I think there was like maybe five people in New York. Um, so pretty much geographically located here and the office, very much an office culture. Um, and, you know, lots of fun stories and we can kind of dive into that. But when COVID hit, what was really interesting is that um, the CEO, Corey, and I were chatting about it probably like end of February. It was like, hey, this thing's happening. Maybe I'm being like, you know, blowing it out of proportion, but it feels like it's serious. When you start talking about this and maybe start thinking about, are we going to send people home? What is that going to look like? But at the end of February, it was still this, it was happening overseas, not that many companies were talking about it. And then all of a sudden, beginning of March, everything shifted. I was actually in SF at a Great Place to Work conference. And I remember on the flight there, planes full. And the day that I got there, um, a lot of the companies on the West Coast were for telling people to come home, right? Because now it was, it was there were more cases in the US, everyone right. was going home. By the end of the conference, I flew back on the plane. There was like five people on it. And I remember <laughs> like looking no around the mic, is this the end of the world? Yeah. Am I going to land? It felt like nothing? the apocalypse. Oh, absolutely. I'm like, yeah. it's a big Walking Dead <laughs> fan. So I'm like, yeah. I'm going to oh, land. Yeah. <laughs> going to see all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, but so for us here in Boston, I think a lot of the companies and a lot of people in my seat um, at our peer companies were like, what are you doing? When are you going home? How, like, how are you facing this? And and I remember it sounds so crazy now, but people were like, maybe two weeks. We're going to shut down for two weeks, maybe four tops. Um, and we were hypothesizing, because at that point, Google had already shut down. And and that to me was kind of the, the anchor, because I'm like, look, Google's the type of company, like it or, or not, when they do something, people follow. They are such a huge influencer. So as soon as they send people home, I think it was probably like a, a March 5th, I was like, this is happening. It's not, a, it's not longer a, a when, an if, it's a when. So let's just get ahead of it because we don't want to be the laggards in Boston. We need to be kind of, a, a, you know, ahead of it. Um, and, you know, CEO was super supportive of that. So we started meeting as companies. We started putting resources together um, and just talking to other companies uh, across the ecosystem of like, here are some resources that we have. This is how we're approaching this. And I mean, it was really fast and dirty, like super, <laughs> it's a little bit crazy. We're having calls with everyone. No one knew what was going on. It was like, look, if you're going to send people home like this, is what you need to think about, you know, even little things like groceries were getting delivered and companies were talking about sending people home. It's like, don't forget to, to call the grocery delivery people and like right. stop that. So there was like these super tactical pieces. Um, for us, my entire team mobilized because this also wasn't public yet. We weren't sharing it with the company because we still didn't have a plan. We need to kind of come up with like plan A and plan B. Um, but really proud of the work that we did. We... Uh, held a lot of, of, of roundtable discussions, did a lot of sessions with other people, leaders across Boston, just to make sure that it was something that we were sequencing with, with everybody um, because it was about you know public health and, and we wanted to make sure we were being thoughtful. But also for our employees, we were coming up with resources because we were such an in-office company. Little things like, okay, what are going to be our... Um, now how are we going to work with each other in a remote world? Are people allowed to... The, the moving question came in a little bit later, but even in the beginning, like, do we have core working hours? 
Do right. they take their computers home? Are they taking their monitors with them? Are we sending them money? Like, so figuring out all of the tactical pieces there. I mean, there's like crazy stories of after a week, we found out that some people had apartments where they didn't have chairs. So I was literally in the Boston office grabbing chairs and like driving them to people's houses because they're like, you need a chair to sit on. Yeah. Um, so it was a little bit nuts up front. But really proud. Like we had this great remote playbook. People felt really supported. I think kind of going through that first part of the journey. I have a question. Um, like yeah, yeah. in all that. So what I what I heard is that you sort of you reached out to peers and others in in sort of like in similar roles as you at yeah. other companies. Is that like a tip? Like it seems like like is that a, a, a tactic of yours to sort of like connect with the community and sort of exchange tips and ideas and try to like hedge toward like all right, we're, we're creating a new blueprint here. Like let let's not create it our own little. Vacuum. 100%. And I think a lot of that comes, number one, I'm just a, I think by nature, a community builder. I, I love having humans over. Like to me, my favorite thing to do is like humans and food, right? And when you can break bread with people and learn about them, that that just like, it, it really lights me up. Um, but before I was at Drizzly, I actually ran a boutique leadership development company. And I'd consider us like tech adjacent because we primarily worked with hypergrowth, uh, you know, tech companies, biotech companies here in this area. So already I feel like, you know, I was a, I was part of the community of the tech community in Boston, and it wasn't just about this company or that company. Intelligently, it was all about, was about creating the, whole, the community and bringing yeah. people together. Um, and and I do think that's a little bit unique about uh, Boston. Like, there's other tech communities, but they do start to get really competitive when it comes for talent. Boston feels a little bit different, right? It feels like people still want to support each other, really help each other, um, which I loved. And even though every once in a while you'll hear some, you know, some companies are like, no, 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 this is proprietary. We're trying to keep it in. In the people space, like A, it's a really lonely role um, because you usually get to deal with a lot of the crap that, that's happening. Um, so it's nice to have other people and have peers that are validating some of these different ideas and you know using them as sounding boards. Um, but also the way I think of it is it's such a small community, right? Even if you don't work with someone today, the chances of your paths crossing 10 years from now, five years from now, pretty high likelihood. So I'm like, let's just put that good energy out there. And uh, I think of it as... You know, the more you give, the it just breeds this like altruistic, um, I don't know, ether. It just love, puts into the space. It. I love it. I want to talk about where this good energy comes from. And I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed you didn't show up with an Argentina jersey on. I almost did. Like, I mean, I can start chanting. We go like, muchachos. Like, if you want to, we'll jump. Because we'll folks chant. can wait and pause and you can go to your car. I'm, I'm guessing you have an Argentina jersey on demand. I have like, like three. What, what's your go-to Argentina jersey? Is it? Am I right in assuming it's going to be a messy jersey or are you going to uh, well, surprise so, me? Well, so, I mean... Yeah, yes, I have a lot of Missy jerseys, <laughs> but um, it really depends on what I wear when I was watching certain games. Uh, but I have all kinds of, like, my daughter right now is a huge DePaul fan. Uh, for me, Maradona also, like, oh. I'm older, so, like, yeah. I, I was part of the, the Maradona era. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, lo love them all. Um, the energy there is amazing. It's, it's, people are going to hate when I say this, but now that he's here in the States, everyone's yeah. like, oh, my good, Messi's our guy. Mm -hmm. Look at how good he is. And I'm like, guys, like, this, this is... It, there's a difference in the level of competitiveness in mm -hmm. the MLS versus, mm -hmm. you know, soccer globally. So um, yeah. I'm glad he's here and I'm glad other people are seeing his brilliance, but I'm kind of like late to the party. Yeah, yeah. well, it's interesting. So um, I don't know if you, you're probably familiar with this, that Messi uh, like only plays on grass fields yeah. and Gillette Stadium is turf. So for everyone that thinks they're going to see Messi play um, at Gillette Stadium, don't don't buy your tickets just well, yet. Although the, apparently a grass field's maybe coming in by the time yeah. the World Cup's going to be here, so we'll see. So yeah. a lot of uh, of of different areas and like stadiums, they're actually making the switch for Missy and Missy yeah. actually. Um, so they, we did switch it once because I saw a friendly. He's so he's done that for a while. There yeah. was a friendly 
um, oh man, what was it? Probably 2015, 2016 um, against Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And they converted it to a grass field, I believe, because he played. I, yeah. I saw him down at Gillette. So I think they did convert it because that's oh. been a thing for a while. Cool. What, what other point? And I kind of want to talk about sort of like your, your parents kind of, you know, immigrating to the U.S. and, and, and sort of settling sort of north of Boston. Um, fun fact, actually, in a couple hours, I will be missing soccer practice, but my, my coaching partner, um, Carlos Caprioli, is, is a nice Argentinian. Um, and once again, you have kids, you know, when you have Absolutely. kids, they introduce you to the most lovely people. So one day in preschool, a couple of years ago, um, my daughter's like, oh, you got to meet Quinny. Her daddy loves soccer too. And I met mm -hmm. Carlos and he, he coaches at Bedford High. He's from, from Argentina, immigrated here. And uh, I was like, great, you're my guy. Like, we're going to be buds. We're going to coach together. Uh, so shout out to Carlos holding it down for uh, the six-year-old six Beverly youth soccer team today. Do you uh, know what part of Argentina he's from? I don't. I, I need to ask that. I need. I need to know. Um, I'm not sure. What, what part of? So, what parts your family so, uh, from? So, my grandparents moved to Rosario, okay. which is actually where Missy, like the city where Missy was born. So, uh, Missy's grandparents grew up. He grew up like two blocks from my grandparents' house. Uh, so, like we played in the same park, not at the same time, because. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately, but, but we, we played at the same park. And then when he was young, he moved to Barcelona, which is actually where my family, my dad's side of the family was originally from before they went to Argentina. Oh, cool. So I feel like we have a double Messi connection on our side. Oh, totally. So you're like totally like going to just connect with Messi. I mean, I feel like we're friends. You're like, he doesn't know it yet, yeah, but like we're friends. You're friends and like borderline cousins. Like you're just like, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, you're like family. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about family. So, so um, you grew up north of Boston, talk about yeah. where you grew up, what was that like, and, 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 and yeah. everything. Uh, my dad moved here in the 70s from Argentina. My mom moved here from Peru, and they met in Boston. Uh, so lived in the city up until I was, you know, five and a half, so I don't think I can claim, like, the deep Boston roots necessarily. Um, and we moved to Boxford. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting, and I think this really did shape who I am, um, because the reason we moved to Boxford was the schools. Because mm -hmm. my mom grew up in a place where if you didn't have that piece of paper, Life was just difficult, right? Like the access to, to, to medicine, even how you got treated by, um, you know, just how people were treated was very dependent on that piece of paper. So my mother was like, education, education, education. She wanted us to move out of the city and go to the areas with the best schools. At that time, Masconomet, you know, great high school. Um, so we moved there. So I went from, you know, growing up, great going around like- teams too. Exactly. Methuen used to travel over to Boxford just to get some good competition because there were some good soccer there, teams over absolutely. there. Absolutely. <laughs> when I was younger, um, we had like, I think women's like won states a few times. Like it, yeah. was, it was good. Very yeah. good. Um, so we would... What was it like though? Be, so, so sorry to interrupt, but what was it like... It, it's it's very white in Boxford. Oh, completely. And, and you you were born here, but you had like you, it sounds like you have a lot of like relatives and family, and you have a very obviously you have a you know an yeah. Argent, you have a Spanish culture. So so what was that? What was it like in Boxford? <laughs> it was interesting. I would say that. I mean, look, my my dad's family is from Spain, so my dad is is relatively light skinned. My mom's a lot darker. Um, so. <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate to say on the podcast, but the joke when I was younger, people were like, oh, they wouldn't have sold the house to your mom. They sold it to your dad. Because back oh, in the day, people would say things like yeah. that. And it was like, yeah, yeah maybe. I don't that know. sounds like a boomer thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but so for me, what was difficult is, you know, you know, we lived in Malden and Medford, you know, East. Like we were all, a little bit all over the place because my dad, very much an entrepreneur, kind of came to this country, started um, like investing in real estate and he's a contractor. And, you know, it's just really... Um, I don't know. He, he, he was really amazing. He's such an inspiration. Um, and so when we cool. moved to the country, like I was used to walking around the streets of the city with my older sister. And then we're in Boxford. There's no street lights, no sidewalks. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was it was difficult. And I think for me, 
I, it wasn't even that Boxwood was difficult. I think I was struggling to figure out where I fit in and where my identity fit in because at our house, we didn't even speak English. Like we spoke English amongst the siblings, but my dad was very adamant that in our house we spoke Spanish. Um, my parents were really, really strict um, and they were strict about things that didn't align with what my American friends' parents were strict about. Like, Yeah, that's I, a good example of that. I had to be in bed at nine o'clock when I was six years old and when I was 16. Didn't oh, wow. Um, sleepovers were not... I got to them once in a while, but my dad was kind of raised and was raising us with the mindset of the day a daughter sleeps outside of her house is the day she's married. Um, again, sounds a little archaic. Yeah. He's a lovely man. He was yeah. just raised in a different time in a different country. Yeah. But alcohol was something that my parents were like, yeah, there's wine in the house. Right. Have some alcohol. Right. Not that they were pushing drinking, but my dad was like, if you're going to drink, you should learn yeah. how to appreciate it. So we were allowed to have wine when we were younger. Um, so this is not as simple. This is like I like what I like about this conversation right now is it's not as simple as like oh a con conservative here or or progressive or liberal here. That's just culture. Yes, exactly. And cult there's different cultures. I think what's happening in the United States right now, like one of the companies I work with is Vivo, and Vivo is a really interesting sort of TV. They're like the modern MTV, and they have they they represent almost all identities of yeah. the the modern U.S. population because there's music from artists from all sorts of sort of, you know, whatever gender, the, gender, whatever culture, whatever generation they're from. And so I think what I've been learning more as I've been trying to sort of like really embrace sort of like a better understanding of like true like diversity, equity, inclusion, it's a lot of it's centered around like understanding, appreciating, learning about, acknowledging, respecting culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think at a most basic level, it's curiosity. It's, it's being curious about people's stories because we're all a little bit different. When you start seeing people on a human level, it becomes less about the right, wrong, black, white. Uh, and I'm saying like, just in that like, you know, conservative, liberal, mm -hmm. everything feels so binary. But when you get mm -hmm. to know exactly. a human, it's like, like we're all just people. We're all messy. We're <laughs> yeah, all trying to do our best. And we're very messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things I, I, I picked up on this back actually from that underscore interview it was sort of, so you're talking about your parents and and sort of, I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of evolving from your upbringing to sort of like what your mindset was about a career and what you felt was like, like, because similar, like to have some, to re, be, to relate here, but we all, we all have our own stories. Like my dad, 37 years, UPS driver, worked his butt off. At times, my mom worked and was with at home with us a lot. So, I like he was sort of the person I always saw working, and and what he told me my whole life was, do well in school, go to college, get a job, just get a job at like a desk, like get one of those cubicles yep. where you can sit down every day, so you don't have to be on your feet. And so that was like, so my goal, my idea was like, it doesn't matter what I do, but if I just if I go to school and I do well and I go to college and I get a job and I'm at a desk and I have a computer in front of me. I'm the most successful person that my like that I've I've got a vision for right now, um, and so I related to that a lot when you when you were sharing like, you know, a job's a job. Um, so I would love to hear like, but what it, what your story about like what a job was yeah. a job and like because you're now like f the fully converted to like, like 180. Yeah. So so talk about that journey. So so I mean I think for me and and again it's it, it can sound terrible but like this idea of love, find something that you love and do it and you're going to be happy. And like, I remember it felt really entitled. And, and even when people were talking about what they're going to do in college, I was like, this 
do you, does everyone love what they do? Because I, you know, both my parents, like I said, they, they moved here from different countries. My dad went down the path of, you know, construction, running his own business. Benefits were through my mom, right? So, mm -hmm. And she wanted to travel the world. So she worked at the airlines because it gave us an opportunity to travel. Um, but it didn't mean that they loved what they did every day. They loved what they got out of it every day, right? So we had access to travel. My dad had freedom and flexibility. And those two things coming together, you know, it was what they really wanted. So for my mom, it was like, look, it's not about loving what you do. You work so you can live, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like that European mindset of like, you work to live, you don't live to, to work. Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I didn't feel that I had to love what I did. I just had to love the fact that if I could support my family, if I could support the travel uh, lifestyle that I wanted to have, that was going to be a win in itself. Um, because again, like I said, it, there's this entitled feeling because there's people all over the world that don't even have access to jobs. And I was seeing it. I was seeing cousins and aunts and uncles that were leaving places where there was, you know, like a lot of my family came from Peru. And in the 90s, they had um, kind of the shining path. It was this you know, like almost this fascist takeover. And like, it, it was impacting family members. It was impacting cousins. It was impacting education. Like, and I'm like, man, we're so lucky. Like when, when all of this craziness is happening there, I'm watching now 2 and and hanging out with, you know, friends. And it was such a stark difference. Um, so with that, kind of, I was going to say long story short, but I have a tendency of making long stories longer. Let's make longer. a long story long. <laughs> long stories longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was my mindset. I thought I was going to be a child psychologist and, you know, ready to go to college, moving to California. That's all I wanted to do is USC was going to be my first stop. Um, and I also, like I had my life pretty much mapped out. Like I was going to work at the airlines. I was going to do Teach for America. So even at a young age, I knew Same. I was going to have lots of stops, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm, like, yeah. I'm going to do this for a couple of years. Yeah. I'm going to do this. And then we're going to do this. And then I'll yeah. settle on a child psychologist, you know, being a right, child psychologist. Right. I was actually in a really terrible car accident, graduation night from high school. Um, and I woke up about a month and a half later after being in a coma. And it oh was like, goodness. hey, you're in a wheelchair. You're probably not going to walk. You may not have kids. And you're not going to USC right away. Um, so everything pivoted for me. Um, so there were two big things. Like the path that I had was not going to work out. And then for parents that were so loving but so protective... Um, and I was definitely the one that was like, let me out. Like, yeah. I love you. I'm going as far away as I can and still stay in the same continent as you. Um, now they were like, now they I was in a wheelchair. So now they could hold me so closer. So now they could hold you really close. <laughs> which was yeah. exactly yeah. exactly what I wanted. Um, no, it was, it, was, it, was, yeah. it was a little bit of a mess. Um, so I kind of just traveled, tried to figure things out and find myself. Um, it was a little bit of a, of, of a messy path, but I ended up working in, in this company in sales. Again, didn't think I'd love what I did. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. How, like you were in a coma for a month and a half? Uh, about that, yeah. So medically induced coma, but still in a yeah. coma. So when, like, what, how significant were your injuries and what was your recovery from that? So you are younger, but you may remember because it happened right on 114. I was the medical miracle of 1996. That was like my big 15 minutes of fame. Oh, other, I, than, other than this, of I course. I think I remember that because there was like a more tragic car accident in the two, three years later for a group of girls from Methuen High that were coming back from UMass Amherst where I think you went to... Did, did you go to UMass? Uh, my my oh. son goes to UMass. You, yeah, okay. Um, but anyway, so so did you have like a really long journey, rehab yeah. journey from that? Oh, absolutely. I'm um, so, I mean, surgeries just from that, I think we're like in the 40s when I got out of there and I have had surgery since then. I still, um, it's interesting because people like, if, if I sit for a long time and walk, people notice that I, I limp a little okay. bit. And um, what's interesting is people like, like, I do have pain, but the pain reminds me that I can walk. Mm -hmm. One of the doctors from um, Mass General when I was there said that they 
they were going to, like my leg was going to be amputated, but I wasn't going to survive the night. So it was almost like I wasn't worth the cost of the amputation. Oh, wow. And it was a miracle. So I've had, I mean, both femurs. I broke both legs. This hips, is the 96? 96 yeah. graduation night. Yeah. Um, and so for a lot of schools, that was the year that they stopped allowing kids to drive to the all night party. Mm. So for any of those parents that have to pick up yeah. their kids and drop them off, they can thank wow. me for, they can for thank that. Gabriella. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. Okay. I had to double click on yeah, that. No, absolutely. And, um, way to triumph that. So let's talk about sort of, all right, school, like first kind of school and then like into your first career. And, and what's interesting is so you, you sort of, you found a, a focus on business and sales enablement. And I, I just love to hear about some of that, er, those early experiences. And like, and also like, I think for, especially we have a lot of young listeners. What I, what I love about your story and, and anyone's story is sort of like, it's, it's about the journey. It's about like, it's not a straight line. I talk about this with my cousin, who's my handsome cousin standing over there right now. He's not paying attention to He's not to even it paying all. attention. It's fine. <laughs> um, but we talk about all the time, like it's not a straight line. Like you have like certain goals in life, but you know, you're moving this way, that way. It's sort of like, it's all about pivots. And yeah. so, but it's not so much like, it's just like natural agile pivots. So Talk about the, the early career and like the things that were developing within you, the skills you were developing, the knowledge that you were internalizing that was setting you up to sort of get on this really, really interesting and, and pretty dope path you're on. You're like, you know, this, you know, the HR people unicorn, you know, sort of leader. Like that's, that's pretty it's dope. It's fun. I get to have a lot of fun, which is great. Yeah. Um, so the way it started, I, I moved a few different times and... It's actually kind of silly how I got into sales. But the way I always thought about things, like, I'm a hard worker, right? I'm like, put me in anywhere. I'm never going to, I, I could fail at something, but I wasn't going to fail because I wasn't putting in the effort. Because that's what how our parents raised us, right? Like, you put in the effort, you show up and, and be the best that you can be. So I was living in Pennsylvania at the time in Pittsburgh, and I had just uh, wrapped up school, and I love cooking. And this woman I met at school was like, oh, you can get a job at the Art Institute and you can take culinary arts classes for free. And I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> if I get a job there, I get to do cooking school for free. And she was like, yeah. So I did that. Didn't actually end up that way. So um, uh, that, that school was owned by EDMC Education Management Corporation. And they had the Art Institute's Argus University, South University. So it was more proprietary education. They had a whole online division. This was around the time that Apollo Group was getting really big. That's, you know, UOP. Okay. Uh, so that was one of the larger, uh, the, one of the larger employers in Pittsburgh. So you know, I think UPMC, Bear were, were some of the the big ones, uh, and so there was that. So that's how I got into it. I ended up being pretty good at sales and did that for a few years. But I didn't love, I didn't love the thrill of the sales. Some people love the hunt. Mm -hmm. It would stress me out. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed is, you know, I, I got promoted. We ended up moving to Arizona with that company. And as I was a manager with these huge teams, I was learning so much just because I fuck up all the time. And I try to learn from those mess ups yeah. as I would go through them. Um, but it wasn't that I was just like this you know, yeah. great leader. It was like, oh, wow, really screwed that one up. Let's yeah. not do that again. We all fail forward. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you know, I would read a lot of books and go through that path. And then um, I started recognizing that this was around 2007, 2008. So the, the housing crisis is happening. There's so, you know, unemployment's high. And the company uh, went from being a public company to being back to being a private company. So there was a lot of dollars invested into it. And the attitude at the time was, hey, there's 
you know, if it doesn't work out with this person, there's a line out the door of people that want, that, that need jobs and that want jobs. And it just felt super inefficient because mm-hmm. as a first time manager, I was managing like 22 people. Yeah. By the time I got around to training someone, mm-hmm. they'd already been in C for four months because you're focused on the people that are really struggling and trying to get the wins over here. Um, and it just felt really, really, it, it was just completely inefficient. So yeah. I pitched this idea of what if we start this little pod you bring anyone, like, I didn't want to be a trainer. I knew that, but I was getting a little burnt down on the sales management side. So I was like, you bring them through me. I'll train them. I'll make sure they're effective and strong. And they'll have to hit certain metrics before we let them go out to the sales floor. Nice. Because that way I'm like, we can authentically tell them, hey, it's a 90-day probationary period and feel good about that. Yeah. You can know that they're going to be getting intentional training. It also, I also am a little bit of a renegade. I like to kind of do my own thing. So I'm like, put me in a back room, let me pilot it, which is basically like, let me do what I want. Just let just, me do just, my thing and, and just, figure it out. Yeah. Well, a question on this, because I, I heard you in previously in the in the underscore interview talk, you, you like mentioned alignment a lot. And um, as like a scrum nerd, like I'm curious if like, scrum and agile like what's is there like a, an operational framework that you really have embraced in your career that you implemented at that time was it more freestyle and you figured it out or did you draw on principles from frameworks i would say yeah. at that organization it was definitely more freestyle it's kind of like mm-hmm. i know how to do this this feels more exciting for me because it was mixing a little bit of training one thing that i realized when i was a sales manager is my team we were super, super, super consistent. Like when I even, you know, as, as, as we were in that space and people would ask me what I did to stay that consistent. And what I realized was that as a sales leader, when we would have these huge, like people would have like great, like great days, some of the other managers would be like crazy excited. And then when it was a bad day, you could see, you could see it on them. And so the team would react to that energy. And for mm-hmm. me, Great day, bad day, didn't matter. It was just like very steady. We had a training every week. We didn't just have trainings when people were failing or or screwing up. But it was more of a, hey, we're sharpening the sword. We're doing this. So I got really curious about the impact of intentional training and practical application. And that's when I was like, oh, this part's missing from onboarding. Onboarding is very classroom, classroom, classroom. And then we just throw people to the, you know, essentially the sales floor. So I wanted to create this in-between spot. And it also, it it was beneficial on, on all fronts because what it did for the managers, they were like, oh, Gabrielle is going to train them. And since I was one of the first people that started that division, they'd all worked with me, knew me. So I, and so they trusted me. You had, you had inspired plenty yeah. of confidence. Yeah. Um, so, so, and they were like, they didn't have to deal with the budget and they would get the wins because if people get those sales, it would go to their numbers. They're like, this is a win-win. And yeah. for me, it was a win because I'm doing something on my own. I was helping all three of the universities and it was very successful. What I didn't realize at the time, I didn't have language for it, mm. is that it was essentially enablement, right? It was it was kind of starting sales enablement on a training perspective yeah. and starting to build that side out. Yeah, We were growing so quickly, I had to, by, by default, had to get like support and help. So I would have these team leads and we were moving so fast that whenever the, we had a management opportunity open, just kind of at the greater company, yeah. we started seeing this pattern where my team leads were getting promoted first because this, this training pod is what we called it, yeah. was almost becoming this um, intensive manager training program. That's so interesting. Like I actually had it wrong when I first was sort of thinking about this point in your career because I think it's wrong for me to say you were doing sales enablement when in fact you were doing sort of salesperson and sort of like sales manager enablement. The, 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 the piece that's missing from sales enablement is the, is the human factor. Because when I, like sales enablement, like in my head, I'm thinking more, you're trying to help enable, like, yes, as a byproduct of those people being better at their jobs, they should be able to go out and, yeah. and sell. But you were enabling them to be just good in their role, sort of, you know, 
internally and externally. And so I think the the human sort of training side of it, now it's really revealing itself why you're on that track towards sort of HR people focus because you're you're an enabler. You you enable humans to be the best version of themselves, which is the best thing a business could have, right? I try. <laughs> you try. <laughs> I try. You aspire to be. You let hype men like me say that about you and you just nod and hit the like button. Yeah, <laughs> but that but, but based on my um, sort of evaluation of things, like it's 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 quite impressive. Oh thank you. It was interesting too I remember when I got that first job and this was my first like non restaurant job. It was my yeah. first job in an office. And I remember we had to do this big uh, personality test before we would get hired. And I remember like six months in, once I became a team lead and started working on my path for management, I was like, hey, once I'm a manager, am I going to see the results of everyone? Because what are we matching it to? What's the baseline? What are we looking for? And I'll never forget, I had this one director was like, oh, I don't know. I don't look at those. And I'm like, How, why are we having people take this big personality test if we're not going to use it? Mm -hmm. And I found that the HR team really kind of sat in a corner and they were more of a... I don't think people leveraged the HR team because there were such great nuggets. They had such, they did such great work, but they were just GNA that had an office on a different floor, right? Like, so no one even, there wasn't a lot of interaction. And I got really curious. I also just really like humans and like conversations. So I'd ask people like, why did you pick this personality test? What are you learning from this? How should I be thinking about this? And I realized that there was all of this untapped resources that were happening on this HR team. Um, and so I got really curious about that. So then I started helping on, you know, interview training and learning about that. and. And I learned so much more about the HR side and also that with the, the enabling of the humans and understanding sales. Because with sales, you're just, especially if it's feature benefit selling, it's more of, like, let me learn about you. Yeah. And if there's any gaps, let's, let's see if we can come up with a solution. Yeah. Um, and I feel like HR is that, right? People operations is that it's, it's a, hey, let's get to know you. And if yeah. there's gaps, let's figure out the best solution. And now I get to do it at a scale where it's a, let's have the company accelerate because we understand who the humans are and that they're these assets. Whereas before it was more on the individualized basis. Mm -hmm. Now I get to do it on, on a company basis. Nice. Who are some of like, I, I want to graduate from there towards like, you know, some of the stops you have, but sort of you getting toward, to, to Drizzly. Um, but, but the question that comes to mind is sort of inspiration and sort of resource. I think you've talked about this before, like resources. I'm curious, like who are the, and what you were just scratching into is sort of the importance of listening to people, being present, um, engaging in like effective dialogue, being an active listener. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of like, so I mentioned Scrum before, but like I've, I've done Dale Carnegie training. Like I'm just kind of curious, like what are some of the types of um, communication methods, frameworks or individuals that are sort of strongly influenced how you approach your craft? Great question. I mean, I think I like tried and true frameworks because when I think of leadership development, there's so, so many people want to reinvent the wheel, right? And it's like, or they look at it from this angle. It's like, if you zoom in this way, you see the rim. And if you zoom out, you see the tread and it looks really different. But I'm like, if you just take a step back, it's all the same wheel, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I love, um, you know, you mentioned Carnegie already, like, yeah. uh, Stephen Covey. Uh, there's just some great authors that just just write beautifully about humans and, and, and kind of recognized 
that humans, they need more than a carrot and stick, right? So I think anything, any, any of that dialogue, any of those conversations, those books, I'm, I, I really connect with. Jim Collins, I think, has done some great work. So most people know him from like Built to Last, Good to Great, Great by Choice. Mm-hmm. So he really did, uh, I think it was like in early 2000s, um, he and another gentleman did a study and they looked at these companies that were founded around the same time in the same industries. And when one had an exit, it had like 10x the amount of returns as the other. And he goes back into history to even look at, you know, when Walmart first started and whatever that small company was that started at the same time as Walmart, like these two corner stores and what happened to them. And what he found is that there's these like basic tenets that go across all of these pillar companies or these built to last companies. And one of them is strong vision. And the way he defines vision is how I think of vision. And vision um, from his perspective isn't a statement. It is a combination of three things. It is your purpose statement, your why. It is your mission, which is what you're trying to achieve, whether it's five years out or 10 years out. Uh, he coined the term BHAG, which you know you may have heard, a big, hairy, audacious goal, um, and then values. And he's like, those three things coming together create vision. He also talks about level five leadership, which is around this personal humility and professional will. And I always really resonated with that. Um, but I would say his book, uh, you know, uh, Good to Great, was probably the first book that I was like, oh my goodness, mm. every chapter in this is just super exciting. And I could build a course out of this. I could have different frameworks from this. And it wasn't until I was at Infusionsoft, which was my first tech company, that I really became, um, I think I became a believer because we were very much a Collins-driven organization. The the person that brought me into that organization was like, hey, these are the books, these are the tenants we want to have to be really values-driven. And at the time, I still had this attitude in the back of my head of like, you can call it whatever you want. There's always a man behind the curtain. There's always something like a company is still a company is still a company. I still didn't really believe in the culture. I believe that you could treat people well and they could have a better experience, but it was still a job's a job and then we get to work and, and, and you know play and life's over on this side. It was at Infusionsoft where they were like, no, this is values driven. This is the why behind it. What years were you at Infusionsoft? Uh, Infusionsoft <laughs> was 2012. Okay. That's when I moved to Infusionsoft. I was in Arizona, yeah. went to Infusionsoft, didn't even know like what they were doing. They're basically sales and marketing automation mm-hmm. for, for true small businesses. So mm-hmm. companies with 25 people or less. Um, now they've rebranded their company called Keep. But it was the first organization that was so focused on values, but intentional values. Mm-hmm. And I was able to see that when you've really put, you know, connect people to purpose and you have, you know, purpose and people, it leads to like higher performance, higher productivity because they're marching towards the same goal, right? And it makes sense. You know, we were talking about soccer earlier. Yeah. They know what the goal is. They all know how to play their role so they can win that game, right? And then when you get past that game, then there's whatever the next challenge is. So it was the first time that I started reading this and got to play and experiment. How do we put these things together? And I truly became uh, not just a believer, but but an evangelist for it of like, and almost saw opportunities to maximize what we could do there. So it wasn't just about the values, but then it became more of a, well, is everything we're doing on the people side really tied to, to values? Mm-hmm. When we think about our management training programs, how can we make sure that that's like founded in our, our cultural values? Our compensation, right? So many people separate comp, like, okay, you have to do comp and that lives over here. Uh, you need to do strategy work and core values, ways of working culture that lives here. No, your, your compensation is a huge driver of, of what kind of culture you're going to have, right? If you're going to pay top of mark and you're going to cut the bottom 10%, you're going to have a little bit more of a cutthroat culture. Mm-hmm. If you want a culture where you're paying people you know, equitably to market, ideally you're a culture of learning because you need to make sure people are still sharpening their skill set. Um, so then it becomes more of like a learning culture. But all of these things are, you know, compensation is, is one of the typically one of the three top costs a company has. So I always think it's interesting when people, um, when people, leaders or other leaders are like, oh yeah, comp philosophy can exist without having 
values mm-hmm. for an organization. I'm like, to me, it's super integral that those things are connected. Yeah. Um, so. Agreed. As a, as a leader um, who often um, speaks of intentions and sort of mission long-term, um, like with some level of repetition and frequency, um, I always say to people I work with, like over-communication with good 100%. intentions is never a bad thing. Um, it's always important to sort of like communicate those intentions, but then also communicate the, the sort of um, hypothesized or planned um, or hoped for stops along the way so that like you're, you're like hitting little mile markers on the way there. Um, so I'm a big fan of sort of like um, values and sort of like long-term sort of vision, mission alignment, but it, while grounding yourself in sort of action, like at, at value creation lives, we're all, we're all about like creativity and, and strategy and big ideas. And then, but then we're like, well, what's the thing we could do the next two weeks, Absolutely. right? Because we're like, we're scrum nerds. We're like, all right, but, but what are we doing in the next two weeks? You know, we have, the, we just align. We want to, we want to build a product three years from now. Well, but what, like, what are we doing in the next two yep. weeks? that's a step in that direction. 100%. Right? And so I, I'm curious, actually, fast forwarding a bit today, because we, we talked about your Drizzly experience, and I, I want to kind of fast forward to, to Chronosphere, and I think you had mentioned, so it wasn't too long ago that you were working on like, a, like brand guidelines, and you were working on that vision, mission, values for Chronosphere. I'm kind of curious, like present day, like, how, like what's, what's your playbook? Share a little bit with listeners, like, and, and, and sort of the audience of sort of like, how are you approaching sort of like, because as a, I'm a brand nerd, like, I actually want to share with you some of the stuff we do on the branding side in terms of like, we, when we get brought in to do brand, we get brought in and we only really can get brought in if we're doing branding culture. And so the biggest surprise that we have, if I could just go off on a little yeah, bit of a tangent course. is, so when we've done a lot of this, like, you know, COVID and post COVID. So we've got, we've got really good, like at virtual, like long three hour sessions with executive leadership teams, big private equity backed company, one example, they had acquired four companies and cobbled them together to create this like ed tech platform. And they're like, hey, we need a, we need, this is the initial assignment was, well, we just need one brand. And we need all these disparate companies to sort of fit under one brand. And they're like, well, you got a, you got a culture issue. Like you actually need a culture. So like, yeah, like you need a brand, but you need to approach this in a way where everyone at these four disparate companies is engaged, involved yeah. in the process. We could do surveys. They're heard, they're listened to. So that as, and we hedge and we start communicating back to them where we're starting to sort of net out from a messaging standpoint, from a visual identity standpoint and getting their feedback. So that when six months down the road, when you get that brand guide, which We'll call it a brand yeah. guy, like whatever you want to call it. Like when you, when that thing is done, that thing is, is, is your, is your Bible, your blueprint for your business. It's amazing. Everyone at the company actually feels like they had a little co co-signature on 100%. it. hundred percent. So I'm curious to hear like yeah. your, your take well, on it. Well, and it's funny because, um, even when I started at Drizzly, I started two days apart from the CMO and I was like, oh my goodness, we're going to work so much together. And I think he was like, you're HR, right? Why, <laughs> why would we partner all the time? And I'm like, no, because you we both need to align on, on values and vision, and then you're gonna take that to market from a brand perspective, and I'm gonna make sure it's authentic and lived internally. Yeah. So I think that there's such synergy between what's happening on a marketing side and on a people operations Absolutely. side. Um, so, and, and I don't think that we can, uh, neither of us can do our jobs well if we don't really have that underlying understanding of what is, where is the company going? Because not as, like the values, it might not be verbatim what you have for your brand guidelines, mm-hmm. but. The, the brand and how you show up to, to the to the masses is grounded in that or else it creates this like 
it just feels really inauthentic. It can feel disingenuous. And then for the employees too, they're looking at it going, we're saying this, but we're doing this. Right. And it's that disconnect, that's misalignment that I think can just has this ripple effect of, of problems. Um, so again, my framework that I typically use is, is Collins. I saw it at play at at Infusionsoft. It already existed when I was there, the vision mission. And I was in a role where I was implementing a lot of the programs. Um, at that company, I was... Uh, I think it was, you know, I was working with people. I was doing leadership development, everything from onboarding all the way to, we had a dream program. So end to end there. Um, and then when I moved to come back to Boston, I ended up working at, at Intelligently, started running Intelligently, the boutique leadership development company. I thought I was going to go back in-house to a company and, and working on a people team. But I just love this space of leadership. And I knew that I wanted to have you know, I, I really wanted to help people because I love working with people. There's so many different ways you can impact people and influence people mm -hmm. in, in um, a leadership capacity. And I also knew that I wanted to really build my community and build my network. And I thought about doing it at a bigger company. And I had, I was very, very lucky that there was amazing companies here in Boston, had opportunities. But then I saw this little little team at Intelligently and I'm like, wow, we could work with all of these different companies. Think about what that impact could look like. Yeah, Think about what that would be. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so when we went there, it was really working with different companies and it was mainly focused on leadership. But as they were talking about it, oftentimes it was a lack of alignment. Companies that maybe they had vision values, but there were words on a wall and they weren't lived mm -hmm. or there were inconsistent. So I would see these patterns and, you know, we would get managers from all of, you know, different levels, different companies. And in these cohorts, they would feel safe sharing what's working and what's not working. Is the grass green over there? Um, and I got to see this pattern of when people feel, and again, Dan Pink said it, right? They want mastery, autonomy, um, and purpose. Mm -hmm. So they, but they also want to feel that they're respected and cared for, right? There's that human side of it as well. And so when you can like articulate that vision, they can see the purpose. They can say, oh, my job's going to have impact. That already is like, you're, you're already winning there. Um, so it was just this opportunity when I started seeing these patterns of, if I could bring this back in-house, because I found that at, in, at in, um, intelligently, at one point, I loved being in the classroom, I loved working with people, but I found that after my first couple of years there where I got most energized when I would be talking to whoever the executive sponsor was that was bringing me in, whether it was a CEO or the CFO or sometimes a head of people, they'd be like, man, Gabrielle, we heard great things about this program. This is what I'm struggling with. And it was never a, oh, I'm, I need to fix these five managers. I would always ask them like, give me, give me the big problems. Like what are the big things that you're, that you're dealing with? Because when there are leadership issues, you see issues across the board. And that's where I started getting really excited. There were companies that had little budgets that I would be like, okay, this is how I would do it. Um, you don't need to have a huge budget to do this, this, or the other thing. And that would get me so energized that when the opportunity uh, popped up to like work in-house again yeah. at Drizzly, I jumped on it because the team was super exciting, but it was almost like I've been, been talking and, and consulting in this capacity on how to think about strategically about people, even though I was working at a leadership development company or running this leadership development company. And it was just like, okay, let's let's see if, if we can make this work. Let's see if it can be successful. And at the time, you know, Drizzly was doing a lot of, of things well, but was not in the in the healthiest of, of spots. Because uh, it's a hard business, right? It's a, it's a really hard business. Um, this was pre our Series C, um, you know, different leadership team, um, going through a lot of changes. We had really high attrition, but really wonderful humans. So I'm like, there's something missing here. And, and literally it was like once we had, not, not saying that it was this easy, it wasn't a silver bullet, yeah. but the first thing 
we do is is that vision. So you asked before about a yeah. playbook. Yeah. Uh, I would say whenever I start somewhere, regardless of the tenure of the company, I come in and I want to know what it, whether they call it vision statement, purpose statement, mm-hmm. mission statement, whatever. I want to make sure those three elements that I mentioned mm-hmm. that that make kind of Collins big vision V. Uh, I want to make sure that those all exist. And I'll ask people. You know, I asked it at Drizzly. I asked it at Chronosphere. People talk about like, oh, I love the mm-hmm. culture of the values. Describe it for me. Oh, how do you think of the values? And if they can't articulate it. Um, and if there's not at least kind of an 80% overlap on it, then you know that by the time it gets to the net, it becomes a telephone game, right? Yeah. And as there's the ripple effect, you start losing some of that core essence. So to me, that's the first and most important piece. And then I think of it from like, you know, I have some people that are like, oh, this is the playbook. If you're going to be ahead of people, these are the three things you do and you do them in order each time. I think that's a fallacy. I think if someone's telling you that, they're, they're you know, blowing smoke or they don't know enough about about their business, which that sounds really rude and inappropriate, but... I'll stand by that. Um, so for me, it's more about what are the goals of the company? Because as a people team or people operations leader, our only role is to make sure that the company hits its, its goals. Ideally with a highly engaged workforce, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what it should be. We are there to make sure that people, which are the greatest assets a company has, are able to, you know, that, that, that we have a great employee, that, that we're getting a lot of value from those people throughout their life cycle so we can maximize the value of that asset. Yeah. That, that's truly what it is at, at its core. So if a company is, you know, thinking of merging, if they're trying to have a big exit, if a company's a startup and they need to grow really quickly, if they're trying to figure out, you know, if they're a little early to mark and trying to figure out that, that their, their strategy, whatever the three big um, kind of strategic priorities for the company are, I think that should help that should help someone in a people leadership role, really, or someone leading people operations, really kind of come up with the playbook. But number one, I would say typically is, I want to make sure there is a, a vision. Maybe that's not the first thing you do, but it should definitely be in that that top three. If it doesn't exist, if it does exist, great. Then it's going to be around how do I reinforce it. Right. Then you look across the board. And I love to think about it from a Maslow's perspective. You know, if you're seeing that a lot of people are leaving or you have a lack of engagement, really find out the why. I try to gather as much data as I can. And then I start bringing it back to Maslow. Um, so if you, you know, and actually this is one of the first things that we did at, at Drizzly. I can give a, a specific example. Drizzly had um, had some some high attrition, a little bit higher than than we were seeing at other tech companies, um, but nothing like crazy alarming. But you know, it, it was happening. So as we were getting feedback from, I, I went and started getting exit uh, interview data, mm-hmm. start talking to just people mm-hmm. during reviews and. And at the time, they didn't have a formalized review process. You know, still, you know, a, a young startup, a lot of companies don't do that. Every manager did it a little bit differently. And what I was finding when I was hearing from people, whether they were employed and just not as engaged, even people that were engaged and were super happy and like bled drizzly, even they, when they would bring up issues or concerns or pitfalls that they saw, it was all anchored on the same thing. And what I saw it as feeling valued, right? Some people were like, I'm getting paid this. I don't know if I'm getting paid enough for what I what I should be doing. I think that team over there is paying this. And money is the easiest way of of kind of really seeing the value that the company is placing on you, right? Mm-hmm. Right or wrong, that's the easiest way to see it. But also when people weren't getting feedback on a consistent basis because we didn't have, a, you know, there wasn't a performance review process that was consistent, people weren't getting feedback. For some people, not getting feedback is, is like, well, they're, they're not valuing my That's opinion. a form of not feeling valued. Exactly. Yeah, not when people were leaving yeah. or they would, they yeah. would, they didn't, we didn't do exit surveys. Um, yeah. People are like, oh, I'm leaving. No one cares. They don't care about my opinion. They don't value me. No. So I kept hearing this theme of value come up. Even though yeah. they weren't saying value, I was seeing it across the board. And then I was like, okay, if we have to fix value, I'm going to start at, because I could have started in a different area, but thinking of Maslow's, I was like, okay, compensation, that comes from the security. That That's yeah. foundational. Mm-hmm. 
doesn't matter what I do up here for all these other areas where people aren't feeling valued, I need to fix it here from the ground up. And it's not about paying everyone this much or this much. It was more of what's our comp philosophy? Do we have a clearly articulated and a clearly you know, designed comp philosophy that we can stand by? Because people actually don't mind. It, it's not about I had to be paid top of market, I want to be paid here. People can be paid at market. Some people will even say, hey, I'll lag the market because I know we're trying to build. And you see that a lot at startups, so it'd be more equity and less cash up front. Yeah. Where, I, where I found that people don't like is they don't like feeling like someone else is being treated differently than they are. Yeah. So for us, it was more of a, hey, this is what we do, and we do this across the board, and we can authentically tell you that everyone's paid in accordance to this comp philosophy. And once they understood that, it was like, oh, I know the way, that, I know the rules of the game now. So now that I know the rules of the game, I feel more comfortable playing. And then we were able to add on other pieces. Um, you know, at Chronosphere, I didn't have to come in and build a comp philosophy. They already had a strong uh, comp philosophy. I added structure to it. Um, but there we started really, again, vision, mission, values. Um, so it might look different at different places, right? Yeah. Learning and development might be more important in one area. So there's not a distinct playbook. I almost feel like there's core volumes and yeah. the mix or the order in which you put them in really depends on the organization. Nice. We don't have too much more time left, but I actually have a follow-up question on that before we go into a couple final questions. So um, on learning and development that you just referenced, curious if you're experiencing or forecasting trends I personally will will tip my hand in that I've seen more like companies that are like really looking to help provide like continuing like upskilling and training to, to organizations. Like I mentioned a company earlier that's doing like they're doing cybersecurity, IT and and audit training and upskilling for, for companies. I mentioned Scrum Inc. They're kind of like turning their um, top, they're taking their top trainers and their top courses and they're creating on-demand products and they're providing that to companies. There's a lot of white label training and ed ed education solutions. So sort of like ed tech for, you know, for, for corporate um, seems to be in my, in my sort of world, and, and I guess it's just anecdotal evidence, but it seems to be, uh, uh, and, and there's a lot of private equity money that I've noticed sort of in this space. So I guess that helps support this more than my own anecdotal evidence. Um, is that something that you're experiencing and how are you approaching sort of like training education as as something to show people in the, the those humans the talent those assets we value you and we value and we're investing in you and we're not necessarily always investing you in your core compensation but we're investing in resources to help 100%. you upskill and future proof your career well and even benefits also like ties yeah. that right that's all adding um like investing in someone so from an l d perspective it's interesting because i'm seeing it a lot more now but i'm always curious when companies are like oh we're we're upskilling and, and reskilling our employees, I always want to know why. Right? To me, it's more about why are you doing that? Are you doing it because you heard about it and it feels right? Are you doing it because you no longer need teams over here and you don't want to lose people, you don't want to riff and so you're trying to find other homes for them? Are you doing it because you're preparing them for the future? There's, I, I like to, I'm curious what that, what that kernel is across yeah. the board and I see, and I think the success can vary. I mean, success always varies, but depending on what's driving that, um, I think there's going to be different It'll be different. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just going to pause there because yeah. I'm I'm yeah. I'm a verbal processor, and yeah. I was found that I was going to start like yeah. getting into my head. So I'm just going <laughs> to stop, and I'm going to move back yeah. Yeah. and answer the actual question that you asked. So, the, the when you were asking like how we're approaching what I'm seeing, first off, I think the reason that we're seeing it across companies, I I, I agree with you. Um, not just anecdotally, I think we're a lot of companies are focused on like how can we develop you as a person, yeah. and I think that really started with 
you know, platforms like uh, like Glassdoor, Monster, LinkedIn, what that did is it gave control and power to the individuals, yes, right? Because yeah. they're seeing all this mobility back and forth. They're seeing all of this before the companies held all the power because you didn't you didn't know who was interviewing. You didn't know what they were paying. You didn't know what the culture was. So because of that, it became a way of competing, right? Because the question 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people weren't like, well, what are you doing for me? It was yeah. like, okay, yes, I really would like this job. You know, yeah. maybe not everywhere, yeah. but now it's like, okay, well, what are you doing for me? How are you going to invest in me? What is my growth going to look like? And so I think it started off as a, oh, customer, are, are the people that we're trying to get, the talent that we're trying to get, they're asking for this. So for us to get an edge, we need to do this. Um, so that's where I think it was starting. Now it's a little bit more, are, you, are we training people so we can keep talent internally? Some companies, you might want to hire really junior people. And so you want to continue to up-level them so you, so you have the talent that you need for the future. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, again, different ages and stages are going to go after different, different groups and different demographics. Yeah. What we're doing specifically, it's less of a classroom training. And my uh, a CEO I used to work with used to tease me about this because, again, I ran a leadership development company. Yeah. And um, he, we were talking about doing this. I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, a lot of that classroom stuff doesn't work. He's like, didn't I pay you a significant amount of money? But we would send people <laughs> to them. I'm like, yeah. and if you had asked me, I'm like, I would have said it's not going to work 100%. Yeah. Um, because so much of the classroom, I think they, they say it's, you know, there's that 10, 20, 70 rule. Yeah. So 10% of your, of your learning is going to come from the classroom, 20% from coaching, mentorship, and 70% from doing. Yeah, from right? practice. It's the practice. Yeah. It's, it's that practical application of it. So I think for me, when we think about it, I like to think about all those facets of learning. And it's really more, I think, from a communication standpoint where I see the struggle is some people think I am being developed if I can get into this new role. So mm -hmm. they associate uh, development okay. with career progression. With advancement. And advancement. Yeah. And so I like to decouple yeah. those things. Hey, what are you actually looking for? And yeah. I think for managers, packaging up like you need to, you're, you're struggling with this skill or this area. Let's give you some, or not even struggling, like this is an opportunity for you to grow into in this one competency, this one area. And it's really around articulating that. Hey, when you did X, Y, Z thing, wow, I could see that you really started, you know, you've, you've been changing your skill set here and people can start recognizing that they are getting better, they are learning, they are developing. And I think just even having that opportunity for reflection. So for, for me, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? Whether it's mentorship, conferences, we do have, we do, uh, I, I like a combination of build and buy. Yeah. So we send people to programs, whether it's Corn Ferry or Life Labs or CCL, or there's so many out there. We also do a lot of internal pieces. I still coach other companies and work with other companies um, with their learning development and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Um, so I think it's a little bit of everything, right? We're, we're, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. Um, and it ties back to a question that you asked earlier on that yeah. I think I completely ignored when you said, hey, when the pandemic hit, how did we think about benefits and how that shifted? And it ties directly to that because, you know, before it was ping pong tables and, and beer. I remember being here in Boston at Intelligently and I would see on LinkedIn, want free beer and want this. And there were some companies that would come to me and be like, Gabrielle, we're not finding the right talent. And I'd pull up their own ads and be like, because you, you're posting free beer and ping pong. Yeah. You're going to get people that want free beer and ping pong. Yeah. You want people that want to solve these problems? Oh, and by the way, yeah. if you have beer and ping pong, cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so, so that was the culture. That was what we were going after. People wanted to have fun. They wanted the snacks. They wanted this. They wanted uh, you know, snacks and, and to have fun and have camaraderie. Yeah. But it was around this environment of, of the office. Once we at Drizzly, I was really happy with, with our, our hypothesis because we did it pretty quickly. It was like within the first like three weeks that we were like, we're going to change all of our benefits and change these perks because of this hypothesis. And it was that by this time, a lot of people who had never been through a down economy were seeing 
the actual death of humans, right? Loss of life. They were seeing loss of jobs. They were seeing all of this loss. Like you couldn't escape, you couldn't get away from it. And, and their own loss of freedom, right? Everyone was losing something. And I think when you are go from the state of abundance to the state of loss, your mindset does shift. And all of a sudden we were like, let's let's actually invest in things that are gonna be more long-term. People are gonna care a little bit more maybe about retirement. Yeah. They might care a little bit more about paying back their students. They're gonna care about if I do have to leave this job, if I do get impacted, right? Because it was there were great companies that were so successful that because of the pandemic ended up cutting just, I mean, hugely. Else. We saw a lot of it here in Boston with like yeah. Toast and Easy Cater. And Toast is such a wonderful like comeback story with what, the, what they've done. Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, super intentional about that as well. But you, so I think that's why people are like, I want to develop because I don't ever want to be in that situation again because that was scary. Yeah, that makes um, a lot of sense. So yeah. that's where I think that, that L&D yeah. and then the perks and benefits, like yeah. COVID... It'll be interesting to like to read a case study on that, like yeah. fifty years from now, to be it, like, you know, how did it change the world? I know it, it will be in a, in a myriad of ways, and in, in more ways than probably we'll even find to find evidence of. Like in fifty years, there's probably going to be more evidence another fifty years later. Um, this has been awesome. I could talk to you for another hour. I have another guest uh, coming on stage shortly. Um, but final question, yes, which is a question we always like to ask our guests: your challenge for the audience. Just one challenge, just something challenge. you like to challenge folks to do. Um, it, it's, it's funny because you actually said something that kind of, uh, it, it's slightly tied to it. Um, when you were talking about like, love that big vision, but what are we doing tomorrow in that scrum mindset? For me, it is just that. Like, it, it's so interesting. I feel like more people, you know, or actually just even planning, planning a little bit day over day it's good to have these big ideas, but I like to do just that of like, what do I want to do, whether it's three years from now, five years from now, then what needs to happen by the end of this year? Yeah. And then that's really easy to break down to like, okay, well, what does that look yeah. like for this quarter, this month, this day, or this week, and then at the daily basis? Yeah. Um, there's a great training, it's uh, through Covey, um, and it's called the Five Choices to Extraordinary Productivity. Yeah. And one of the choices is just like, how you spend your time because your time is a finite resource, yeah. right? And it's not about time management, it's more choice management. And I yeah. love that language of we are choosing each day what to do. So you think about, you know, for me, like when I think of who I am in my role at work, I know what I want to accomplish at the end of the year. So it's like, what is the one thing that I can be doing tomorrow that's going to help me get there? So just spending five minutes of your day yeah. planning for yeah. tomorrow or if it's and waking up early and planning for that day, but making sure that you're tying it back to what is this relevant? Where's the impact that I'm having that's going to have a, a greater scale? And not just for work. I do that with my kids. Like, I yeah, want to be a mom that yeah. my daughter and yeah. my son want to hang out with, right? So I'm like, what could I be doing? Yeah. Not just hang out, that they that they, well, they, that admire. they trust, that they admire. They look up they're, they're, to. Well, yeah. actually, so you, you answered this question written and like you put it really well and it resonated with me, which is basically like reflect on your day and like, and, and sort of like be productive in planning like the next, the next day. And like every single day I, I, I reflect, I plan. Not every day, but often days I write in like the family journal too because I try mm -hmm. to like reflect on personal things and, and professional things. Love that. Because, um, and just to relate to the parent thing, I, I like to say that, you know, my daughters aren't here right now, one six years, one six months. Um, but I like to say that any action I take in life, if they were to be able to just like, automatically, I want them to be proud. And so I think that, you know, yeah. that, and that in that moment, those moments of reflection, I think are really yeah. key each day. And you said it much more succinctly. I, and I, as I said, I tend to like wander. So the challenge well, at, at a yeah. bare minimum yeah. is spend five minutes today. Yeah. Just five minutes today and tomorrow, reflect, reflect a little bit yeah. and then just say, what yeah. do I want to accomplish? For? It doesn't have to be a laundry yeah. list. It could be two things. Yeah. But man, it feels good to accomplish those two things. It does. You know? And it feels good to have met you. And I have, am so and excited have done this. That we, We're going to we take met. these headsets off and we're going to embrace. We're going to give a hug. And uh, thank you everyone for, uh, for listening. And uh, 
Startup Boston Week continues on. Cheers, Boston. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much.